So this is a painting by Rembrandt. It's called The Prodigal Son in the Tavern. Now, as we're going to see in a few moments, I'm not sure the tavern is where the youngest son actually spent all of his money. But Rembrandt does offer profound theological insight through this painting. This is a self-portrait. He has painted himself as the prodigal. One of the more important qualities of our scriptures is their immediacy to our own lives if we allow them to have that immediacy. When we let the stories within the biblical narrative be what they are, ancient stories of the human experience, and if we read them with any honesty, we cannot help but come face to face with our own persons. And when we're willing, as Rembrandt was, to insert ourselves into the lost characters we find there, that is exactly, I believe, when we begin to live most authentically. For authentic human being begins with recognizing our need to be found. Recognizing that redemption, conversion, being found, is something we are given. It's not something we earn. It's not something we appease God enough to get. It is something we need to receive. But without knowing we need it, we would never receive it. To use the language we've been using the last few weeks then, authentic human being begins by recognizing that we are all made in the image of God, but that image is cracked and it needs to be fixed. Of course, if we don't know the true image of God, how can we possibly know if it needs to be fixed in us? Or we've been talking about worshiping ourselves. If we don't know the true image of God, how do we know if we're worshiping God or we're just worshiping the image of ourselves? And this is exactly why Jesus told this parable. To reveal the image of God to us and to also reveal our own image to us. So that we would know the difference. And hopefully, when as we discover this difference between God's image and our image, we begin to worship the true we begin to truly worship God and not continue to worship ourselves. So, the question then is, who are we in the parable? Who are you? Are you the younger son? Are you the older son? Here's my suspicion. We are a little bit of both of them. My confidence is we're meant to be like the Father. The Father, in this parable, is the image of God uncracked. And we are all meant to be converted into his image. Conversion is that ongoing process in our lives in which we allow God to become ever more alive in us and can say with Paul, with confidence, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is one of the most fantastical claims of our faith, when you think about it. If Christianity is true, and this is asserted, wow, that's a big deal. Right? It's... Christ in us, Christ living in us, in the world, living like Christ. I think sometimes we sort of just breeze over that. But that's why we're looking at this parable, to make this connection between Galatians, what Paul says in Galatians, which I think is the entire gospel, and all the other stories in scripture and how they all fit together. So, Snodgrass explains the dynamics of the process of conversion as found in this parable. I think he does a brilliant job. Here's what Snodgrass says. This parable is an invitation to return to our true selves, to come to ourselves, if you will, and return to God and be embraced by God. 
So with such ideas, the parable is fertile ground for reflection on conversion. The first step to conversion and reconversion, conversion is a process. Let's not get caught up in the idea that it's, you know, one and done. It's an ongoing process of conversion is coming to ourselves. God's grace allows us to come to ourselves, and only there do we know who we are and are we able to speak the truth, truth without which we cannot live. The truth is that we are lost and we need to be found. And if we never, ever get to that truth, then the finding never sort of happens because we just assume we're found already. This is why it's so important. So who are we? Who are we? Last week, we started to explore the younger son in some detail. And here's what we discovered, just a quick synopsis for those that might have missed it, but you'll need to probably listen to the whole thing. But for a quick synopsis is this. The younger son is lost because of his complete rejection of the demands of relationship. Okay? His total abandonment of the father and the family was grotesque. Was grotesque. Remember, when he asked for the money in that culture, what we saw was he was basically wishing his father dead. So, we also took note that in the Bible, meeting the demands of relationship is what true righteousness is all about. Meeting the demands of relationship is what true righteousness is all about. And this is why the scripture is comfortable in saying no one is righteous except God. This, this should not be an offensive statement. For those of you who have been presented it to in an offensive way, I apologize. There are a lot of religious leaders that are wonderful at presenting things in offensive ways. But this should not be offensive at all. This, once righteousness is understood, this is like one of the most basic, simple reflections of humanity, right? It's been turned into this massively big doctrine that is often used to hurt people, but it's just a basic reflection. For think about it, we all, at one time or another, have rejected the demands of relationship. Is there any, can you honestly, is anyone here honestly say they've never rejected the demands of relationship? I mean, honestly. Like you, you can't help but reject the demands of relationship because we're human and we're fallen. And sometimes we reject the demands of relationship and we don't even know we're doing it because there's so many people in this world and sometimes we do things that hurt others and we don't even know we're hurting others. We just rejected the demands of relationship. So, you see, this isn't an offensive statement. It's just very basic. Yes, no one is righteous except God because God never, ever rejected the demands of relationship. This is why the biblical narrative is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful story. It's about a world of lost people and a God who finds lost people. How beautiful is that? Who doesn't want to be found in that story? Spectacular, really. So, before we continue with the younger son, I want to turn our attention first to the older son. For he is as lost as the younger son. And as we are going to see, he's lost for the exact same reason a distinct lack of righteousness. Even though, even though he appears from a distance to be a model son. All right? Now, we're going to look at the older son in much more detail later in the series, but I want to touch on this now because we find the older son in the opening scene. And it really will help us understand later what's going on with the older son. 
And if we miss this in the beginning, which I think is often missed, why the parable goes on to mean something it doesn't mean. It, it, anyway, let's, let's go on. So right here in the beginning, indirectly and silently, the older son is introduced. And it's in the silence about him that we can learn so much. So in this culture, in the culture that Jesus is telling this parable in, okay, a breakdown of relationship, like the breakdown between the younger son and the father, demands a mediator try to fix it. It requires that a mediator would fix this broken relationship. So whenever Kenneth Bailey told this parable in the Middle East, which he did in villages throughout the Middle East for over 30 years. Kenneth Bailey lived for over 30 years in the Middle East, and he would tell this parable. He would always ask people who the mediator should be in this situation. So here's this Middle Eastern village people that understand everything that's going on in this story, and Kenneth Bailey would say, okay, if this is what's happening, if there's this complete breakdown between the father and son, who should be the mediator? And the answer always was the older brother. The older brother is the one that should mediate this situation. Now I'm going to let Bailey's own words explain how powerful this is and how important this is to understand this parable. It is up to the older son to step in at once and try to reconcile his brother to his father. The family and community demand it, but our man is silent. He refuses to fulfill the sacred responsibility that village custom places on his shoulders. Clearly, for some reason, he does not want reconciliation to take place. If he hated his brother, he would still fulfill the task for his father's sake. Because in the East, personal relationships are supreme. He would basically say, I hate my brother, but for the sake of my friend, my relative, I'm willing to do everything. The climax comes in relationship to one's father. So... For his sake, I am duty-bound to do everything and anything. But here, the older son refuses. This refusal is clear indication of his own broken relationship with his father. Things are not as they should be between him and his brother or him and his father. Relationship has been rejected. The older son is lost too. Do not miss that about this parable. I'm sorry that it was named the prodigal son years ago. That's not what Jesus called this parable. He just told the story. Bailey goes even further to suggest that it is possible that this insufferable tension caused maybe by the arrogance of the older brother is part of why the younger brother leaves. Regardless, both sons rejected the father. Amazingly, he refuses to reject either of them. Mm. Righteousness as evidenced by grace. This is why the biblical narrative is all about grace. Where there is no grace, there is no righteousness. And I'll let you just put that in your head and let it bounce around for a while. Where there is no grace, there is no righteousness. So, let's get on with the story in The Younger Son. And just try to keep this in mind and remember this. As we go, this is a long series, but I think it's the most important story Jesus told. And when we latch onto it and really get into these details, 
it can change everything and change our lives. So, in verse 13, he gathered everything together. This is the younger son. Literally means he turned everything into cash. Okay, remember the father did not liquidate his shares of IBM to give his son the money. Instead, the portion of the estate was given in land, animals, and property. The son then only took a few days to sell it all. Now, here's another detail that's important. In the Middle East, this type of transaction would take months, if not years, as they bartered back and forth about the cost of these things. To accomplish this in a few days meant the son sold everything at steep discount. So it's hard for us to grasp this scene, really, living in the way we do. But try to imagine this scene. The son has absolutely devastated his father by rejecting their relationship. Now he brings heaps of shame on the family with this public display of liquidating his share of the estate. For pennies on the dollar, the son sells off what the father has worked a lifetime to secure. He is lost. All ready. And that's important because now we get to this next scene where the son travels to this far country and proceeds to spend it all. And boy, does this get misused and abused and causes a lot of misunderstandings of what this parable is. We don't have time for a complete word study. It's, the series is long enough, but I have to comment briefly on this because the more popular understanding can really allow us to miss the point of the parable. The popular understanding is many people, many people have simply accepted the older brother's accusation of the younger brother's immoral living as truth. Okay? So, but when this son of yours come, came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf friend. Wait a second, this is an accusation from an angry, jealous, bitter, and completely unrighteous brother. And we assume that this is the truth of the matter. Hmm. So, let's look at it more closely. The word translated as squandered, now this is the narrator telling the story using these words, so that would have been Jesus telling the story, right? The word translated as squandered means scattered. It means scattered. For example, scattering of an enemy on the field of battle, scattering of a flock of sheep, scattering of grain in the winnowing process, scattering of seed and sowing. Okay? There's the original, scattered. And the phrase that is translated as loose living means spendthrift living. Spendthrift living. Spendthrift means, what does spendthrift mean? Extravagant spender or wasteful with money. Extravagant spender or wasteful with money. Do I have that there? Yes. That's what spendthrift means. Okay? Aristotle, on the idea of a prodigal, says a prodigal means a man who has a single evil quality, that of wasting his substance. Doesn't matter what on, just he wastes his substance. Could be on very good things. Bailey is convinced, and after studying this, I think I agree with him. This is what Bailey says. The money was used primarily to establish a reputation for generosity. He holds large banquets and gives out expensive gifts. Generosity is a supreme virtue, coveted by all. The opportunity to gain status in the eyes of new friends through an exercise of this virtue would be the highest kind of pleasure for an individual. You see how important it is to understand this? 
Is it, is it starting to click why this is an important detail to wrap our heads around? Because this supports the overriding message of Scripture. The younger son is lost because he has violated the demands of relationship with his father, not because of what he may or may not have done with the money in the far country. That is so important to grasp. We should not give ourselves the loophole of defining righteousness as following some code of ethics. That loophole is false and it keeps us blind to our own true unrighteousness and the process of on need for ongoing conversion. Furthermore, it lets us think we are not lost simply because we have a clean checklist on the ethical scorecard. That is the older brother syndrome, and it's very dangerous. For many years of my Christian life, I was this older brother completely and utterly lost, even though I was a model Christian, missionary, all that stuff, incredibly ethical. I, I had no relationship with this loving father of mine. It was all based on what I was good at and what I could do. This is a very dangerous place to be. Because the problem with this is that the older son has no idea he's lost. The younger son eventually figures out he's lost. This is important. Really, really important. But don't misunderstand me. And sometimes I think this is what happens. People hear me and they don't really understand, or not that they don't understand, it's that maybe I'm not clear enough. This doesn't, just because when I say righteousness is about right relationship, that doesn't mean ethics don't matter. For example, it is incredibly unethical to sleep with your neighbor's wife. I will never apologize for saying that. Why? Because it's unrighteous, because you're violating relationship. That's the point. So what's wrong there is the violation of relationship. That's what makes it unrighteous. Righteousness then will make us incredibly ethical people. But that's because it comes from our righteousness. It's not a pursuit of righteousness. So when someone comes to me and confesses they're in an illegitimate relationship, the first thing I do is I don't barrage them and call them evil and gross and sinners. I say, okay, well they're in this because there's a lack of righteousness. The lack of righteousness is where we need to begin. The behavior will come later. And the worst part about an illegitimate relationship is that then when they break that one, guess what? They're unrighteous again. See how tricky this is? This is why when God shows up in the flesh, he says, listen, we're going to forget about the rules. And we're going to talk about loving others. Because if we don't start there and we don't understand that, it doesn't matter what you do. You will remain unrighteous. Righteousness is about relationship. So, he spends everything he has. He has nothing left and a famine comes and he has no one who will help him. So he attaches himself to a citizen. Basically what he does is he offers himself as a servant in exchange for food and some guy who does not really want him around says, you can feed the pigs. This was not an offer of a job. 
This was not some guy saying, come on, I'll help you, I'll take care of you. No, this is basically the guy thinking, oh, he's a Jew. He's not going to have anything to do with pigs, so I can get him off my back by offering him the pig job. That's what this was. Okay? But in fact, the son is so desperate, he takes on even this task, which is absolutely offensive. And while it is not exactly legally wrong for a Jew to take care of pigs, as long as he does not touch them or eat them, this was still considered an incredibly unclean thing to do. So here's the question as we wrap up. Why would this son choose the degradation of tending pigs instead of returning to his father? Think about that. Why would this son choose the degradation of tending pigs instead of returning to his father? A father that, when he completely rejected him, and remember we talked about this last week, any younger son who asks that of the father is supposed to be beaten and driven out of the house. This father just did it. His love was so amazing. So why would that son not return to that father? We're going to talk about that next time. But until then, I have two follow-up questions for you. When we reject the demands of relationship, we are like the younger son, lost in a far country. So here's my question to us. What keeps us from returning to our father? What keeps us from returning home where we are meant to be, loving God and loving others the way he loves us? What prevents that? What, think about it. What prevents that? Now listen, I know in our kingdom there are all sorts of good from a human perspective, good from a human perspective reasons to reject the demands of relationship. And I get how dark and painful life can get when relationships are crumbling. But here's what I want to talk about. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, and we're going to spend our time and resources in growing our Christian faith, then isn't the point to follow Christ in his righteousness? His righteousness was meeting the demands of relationship perfectly. That is why Jesus was able to pray for the forgiveness of the soldiers while his blood was still warm on his hands. That's righteousness. They rejected him. He would not reject them. Now listen, we all have people in our lives with our blood on their hands. Some of it's still warm. Some of it from very big and massive and painful betrayals of the relationship we had with them. Some just because of the everyday things that go on in life and make us just get fed up with people and not want anything to do with them. But if we believe the cross is the way, what keeps us from coming home? And listen, I'm not talking about reconciliation. Remember, when we do our Forgiveness Sundays, we're very clear about this. Reconciliation is a different part of a process. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about forgiveness. And starting there. Jesus and the soldiers didn't reconcile that day. But Jesus left the door open for it by forgiving them. But I'm not even really talking about these big deals. Because the majority of us 
yeah, we go through those big moments, but then our lives go on and we have all more relationships. And, and I'm not talking about going back in time. To, to, I'm talking about just now, in our relationships now. What is preventing us from going home? Now the older son was home, or at least he thought he was, and we realize he was just as lost as his younger brother. So here's the question. If his arrogance was part of what drove the younger son away, then his arrogance may be part of what is keeping, may be part of what is keeping the younger son from coming home. So then the question to us, a different question is, when we think we're home and we exhibit maybe not arrogance, but just an extreme certainty over our doctrines and our rules and our regulations, and we say or do things in judgment or exclusivity, that's why I played that incredibly harrowing, haunting, beautiful song. She's somebody's baby. She's somebody's baby still. And if we can't see the most marginalized people of our society, if we can't see drunks and drug abusers as somebody's baby, or better, if we can't see them as us, we're just the older brother. God, we are all God's babies wherever we are. And if we're acting like the older brother, then maybe that's why people don't come back to church. Maybe that's why people don't want anything to do with God. Because they think it's just like us. Our answers to these questions will help us all be like Rembrandt and find ourselves in the biblical story. And the good news is, when we are able to do that, we are one step closer to being home, truly. For our Father in Heaven is a Father who finds the lost, heals the sick, and raises the dead. Amen.